Good morning again. It is a, it's a pleasure to worship with each of you this morning. You can go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. We're going to be in verses 28 through 48. And again, we've come this morning to Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem and the beginning of the last week of his life. Uh, Jesus is nearing the end of his mission on earth. Uh, so please look with me starting in verse 28 of Luke 19. When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say this, The Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the colt, they helped Jesus get on it. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, If you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst, because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. He went into the temple and began to throw out those who were selling. And he said, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people were looking for a way to kill him, but they could not find a way to do it because all the people were captivated by what they heard. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do pray that by your spirit you would lead us to submit yourselves to your word today. Father, that we would sit under it, that we would take delight in it, that we would meditate on it. Father, I pray that the preaching of your word this morning would be clear. Father, that you would give your people ears to listen. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Perkin Warbeck, Perkin Warbeck was born in the late 1400s, and his name is still known today, not so much for who he was, but for who he pretended to be. During the reign of King Henry VII of England, uh, Perkin Warbeck claimed that he not King Henry, was the rightful heir to the throne of England. He claimed to be the youngest son of a previous king, King Edward IV. And now King Edward had two sons, uh, two heirs. They had both been imprisoned in England as children, and they were both thought to have been murdered, though no one was quite sure what had happened to the, to the youngest son. Nobody quite knew if he was alive or dead. Well, that set the stage for Perkin Warbeck, uh, at the urging of some of the enemies of King Henry, Perkin Warbeck claimed to be this younger son. 
and therefore the rightful king to England. He claimed that he had been secretly rescued from prison and safely hidden away until he was ready to take the throne, until he came of age. And so he claimed to be the rightful ruler of England. This claim to the throne actually gained some traction. Many in England believed his story. And he traveled to a number of different countries across Europe to visit with their rulers and seek support to his claim to be the rightful king. He even gathered a small army and on three different occasions tried to invade England. In his final invasion attempt, his small army was defeated and he was captured. After his capture, Perkin Warbeck admitted to being an imposter, a fake. He admitted that he was not the younger son of King Edward. And so unsurprisingly, he was executed for treason. In this passage from Luke's gospel, Jesus' disciples clearly claim that Jesus is the rightful and long-promised king of Israel, the promised Messiah. They, they welcome him to Jerusalem as king. That is what is going on in our passage. But we see that not everyone accepted Jesus' claim to the throne. The Pharisees told Jesus to silence the claim of his disciples. They did not accept him as king. The city of Jerusalem, which was the city of Israel's kings, where they reigned from, well, they did not accept Jesus either. Jesus mourned over the city because he knew the people rejected his rule as well. Well, like Perkin Warbeck, Jesus would eventually be executed for his claims to be the Messiah and King. But unlike Perkin Warbeck, we know this was not the end of the story. Jesus was raised again. He is even now ruling and reigning as King from the right hand of the Father. And he will one day come again in judgment to destroy all those who oppose his rule. However, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus brings peace to all who welcome his rule. Therefore, the the main idea of these verses and this sermon is this. Jesus is the rightful king who brings peace to all who welcome his rule. Jesus is the rightful king, and he brings peace to all who welcome his rule. I have three points to help us consider that idea this morning. The first is the revealed king. It's verses 28 through 40. The revealed king. Second, the hidden king, the hidden king, verses 41 through 44. And then finally, the reforming king. You can find that outline in your bulletin. But first, let's look at the revealed king from verses 28 through 40. Now, before we actually do that, look back for a moment at Luke chapter 19, verse 11. We looked at this verse last week. If you remember, Jesus told his parable about faithfulness because many thought that Jesus was about to overthrow Israel's Roman oppressors and take the throne of Israel. They thought the kingdom of God was about to appear. Jesus, in that parable, instead made it clear that there would be a time of waiting before the kingdom of God is fully established. It will not happen until Jesus' second coming. Nevertheless, though that is true, It is absolutely true that in Jesus, the king of God's kingdom had come. 
the king had arrived. That's who Jesus was. In his coming, the king had arrived. And this claim that Jesus was the Messiah and the rightful king of Israel, it was not a claim that was invented by Jesus' disciples. And we see in our verses that Jesus was fully in control of all the events that were taking place. Just look at verse 28. It was Jesus who went on ahead to Jerusalem. He's directing the action. And it was Jesus who commanded two of his disciples to go and find a specific colt, a, a young donkey that had never been ridden, and bring it to him. Well, why in the world did Jesus send his disciples on this strange errand? It is a strange errand, I think. Well, the first reason is because it demonstrated Jesus' authority as the divine Son of God and the true King of Israel. I mean, just for one, uh, how could Jesus know that his disciples would find everything just as he has said? It's because he is God, because he is all-knowing. Uh, now, some argue that Jesus may have sent word ahead to the owner of this donkey that he was indeed going to require it at some point. So that's why the owners gave it to Jesus. That's how Jesus knew what they would find. I don't find that a compelling argument. If Jesus had done that, why would the owners question the disciples as they come to get the donkey? Uh, I think instead we see Jesus' divine knowledge as the Son of God at work here. We see Jesus' divine knowledge as the eternal Son of God at work. And we see Jesus' authority as king in another way as well. Jesus commanded, and people obeyed. Jesus commanded, people obeyed. Now, surely the two disciples that Jesus sent on this errand probably thought it was a bit strange. If I was one of the disciples, I think I'd be a bit uncomfortable going and taking somebody's donkey. But when the disciples showed up at this house and the owners asked what they were doing, uh, they simply said, as Jesus had commanded them, the Lord needs it. Well, that was good enough. Uh, friends, if a representative from the, from the sheikh showed up at your house all of a sudden and said the sheikh urgently needed your car, uh, what would you do? Well, maybe after verifying that they actually came from the sheikh, you would give it. The sheikh has authority. Well, Jesus has greater authority. He commands, people are to obey. Well, I love the fact that Jesus just told his disciples to say, the Lord needs it, if they, if they were asked about taking the donkey. There's no elaborate explanation needed. It's just, the Lord needs it. I mean, what a simple statement that is. But brothers and sisters, should we need to be told anything else in order to eagerly and joyfully give everything into the service of King Jesus. The Lord needs it. Now, the truth is God owns all things. Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. Friends, God does not need you. God does not need me. God does not need any one of us or anything that we have. But as we saw last week, he entrusts things into our hands to steward for his purposes. In his wisdom, he has chosen to work through his people, through their prayers, 
through their service, through their energy, or to use the things, the gifts, the talents, and the resources that God has given us for his purposes. As go the words of the famous hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, were the whole realm of nature mine. Well, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Well, friends, are you willing and eager to give King Jesus your soul, your life, your all? Well, that is one way that you welcome his rule in your life as king. It is to welcome his dominion over your life, to recognize that he has the authority to command you and you're to follow and obey. He has the authority to demand anything that he has entrusted into your care for his service and where to give. It's one of the ways that you welcome his rule as king in your life. Oh, the second reason that Jesus gave this strange instruction to his disciples is that it fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. We just read about that in Zechariah 9, 9. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Well, the fact that this colt, this donkey, had never been ridden showed it was fit for a king. It was not someone's old, worn-out donkey that had ridden 100 times. They didn't go shopping to the used donkey market to find something for the king. No, this, this donkey had been preserved for the king. It was fit for a king. And yet, though this donkey was fit for a king, by, by coming on this colt, by coming on this donkey, Jesus came gently and he came humbly. He did not come on a war horse, a large war horse at the, the front of an army. As we see in verse 38, Jesus came not to bring war, but peace. Nevertheless, it is certainly true that Jesus came as king. His disciples gave him the reception that he deserved. Though the crowd of Jesus' disciples that had been following him and had witnessed his miracles, oh, these miracles had testified to who he was, the Messiah the divine son of God, the rightful heir to the throne of David, the long-promised king. Well, they had seen these things, and so they joyfully welcomed him by quoting Psalm 118 and proclaiming, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Those words come from Psalm chapter 118. And they go on to say, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Well, this is how Greg Gilbert describes the scene of Jesus' triumphal entry in his book, Who is Jesus? We actually have that there in the library in the back if you want to check it out. But this is how he describes the scene. All of this was filled with significance. Not only were the people waving branches and spreading their cloaks on the road in front of Jesus, a typical symbolic response of submission to royalty, but they were also calling him king and declaring him to be the heir of David. On top of that, they were quoting from an ancient song, Psalm 118, that the people used to greet their king as he approached the temple to offer sacrifices. The whole scene would have made quite a spectacle, and Jesus meant it to draw attention. Hearing the cries of the people and recognizing what they were saying, 
Well, some of the Pharisees were scandalized and complained to Jesus. Teacher, they said, rebuke your disciples. They wanted Jesus to agree with them that the people's cries of royal acclamation were inappropriate. They wanted him to deny kingship, but Jesus would not do it. Well, the Pharisees thought what Jesus' disciples was saying, were saying was blasphemy. They fully understood what Jesus' disciples were claiming here. They, they were claiming that he was the heir to, to David, the long-promised king. So they tell Jesus to, to quiet his disciples. Well, the tragedy was that many of these Pharisees had seen the same miracles as Jesus' disciples, but their eyes were blind. And their hearts were hardened by their sin to, to who Jesus truly was. He was hidden from them. Well, earlier in his ministry, Jesus had commanded the, the demons to be quiet and not reveal his identity as he cast them out. He had told people he healed to, to, to tell no one of what he had done and tell no one of who he was. But not now. Jesus' hour had come. He was entering Jerusalem. It was time for him to be revealed. So he embraced the praise of his disciples. He told the, the Pharisees if his disciples were silent, the very rocks would praise him. His praise could not be silenced. The king had come. Well, church, may our own praise of King Jesus be so clear and so bold that it cannot be ignored. Friends, may people take notice. Brothers and sisters, we do not want the rocks to have to cry out in our place. Brothers and sisters, I hope that those who have known you for, for any length of time, they are not confused about who you worship. I hope they are not unclear about what you think of Jesus. Friends, boldly share the gospel. Be intentional to, to publicly praise God and thank God in the course of just your ordinary daily conversations. Do not be afraid to give God the glory. You should want people to take notice of the fact that you are a Christian. Not because you want any attention yourself. Because you want Jesus to get attention. Because you want him to receive praise. I hope no one ever comes to this church and leaves wondering what we think about Jesus. May our own proclamation of the gospel be so clear that the claims that we are making about Jesus are unmistakable. He is the only way of salvation. There is no other way. It is Jesus alone who saves. There are not many ways to heaven. There is one way. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ. May our praise be so loud and joyful that people are convinced that we truly love him and we believe that he is our king. They see us submitting our lives to his rule. Friends, this is what it looks like to be a Christian. This is what Pastor Ben preached to us from, about, about from Psalm 98 a couple of weeks ago. We're to sing a new song to the Lord. We're to sing of his victory and his salvation. So friends, if this type of praise does not characterize your life, if you have no desire to clearly and boldly praise Jesus, perhaps ask yourself if you truly know this king. Friends, Jesus has made no secret of who he claims to be. He has made no secret of who he is. The, the question is not who he is, but will you believe what who he has said he is?
Will you submit to his rule? Will you welcome him? Friends, the, the praise of Jesus is inevitable. It is unstoppable. If you will not praise Jesus, the rocks will. There is no stopping Jesus from receiving the praise that he is due. The question for your life is, will you join that praise? Friends, the, the verses that follow reveal the terrible consequences of those who do not submit to the rule of Jesus Christ in their lives. That takes, us to, that takes us to the second point of the sermon, verses 41 through 44. The hidden king. The hidden king. Well, about 600 years before the birth of Jesus, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon conquered Judah and laid siege to Jerusalem. You can read about this in 2 Kings 25 and 2 Chronicles 36. After Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem, he removed Judah's king from the throne. And in his place, he appointed a new king, King Zedekiah, to rule. Now, Zedekiah's instructions were pretty simple. Just do whatever Babylon says. Obey King Nebuchadnezzar. King Zedekiah was supposed to be a puppet king. Instead, after Nebuchadnezzar and his armies returned to Babylon, Zedekiah rebelled and tried to make a military alliance with, with Egypt so that Egypt and Israel could oppose Babylon. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon was not very pleased by this, so he came again, he surrounded Jerusalem, he laid siege to it, and this time he destroyed the city and the temple. That temple was eventually rebuilt, but that's what happened in 586 B.C. Well, the fate that Jerusalem experienced for rejecting King Nebuchadnezzar's rule was the same fate that Jesus warned would face the city for their rejection of him as king. Look again at verse 41. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, if you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. Oh, we see a couple of significant surprises or contrasts in these verses. The first is that though Jesus had been revealed, he remained hidden. Look at verse 42. Though Jesus had done countless miracles, he had demonstrated his identity in so many other ways, and even then, he was entering Jerusalem as king. He was being praised as king by his disciples. Well, it still remained true that his true identity remained hidden to many people. Well, friends, what Jesus is speaking of here is Israel's rejection of him. It was their sin and their hardness of heart that had hidden Jesus from them. Most of Israel and certainly the religious leaders thought of Jesus as something like Perkin Warbeck an imposter king, making ridiculous claims. Therefore, they put him to death on the cross. However, the sad reality is, though they would is that they would face God's judgment for this because we know that Jesus was not an imposter king, but the Son of God, the true king, the long-promised king of Israel, the heir to the throne of David. Well, that brings us to the second contrast we see in these verses. 
Jesus came to bring peace, but instead of experiencing his peace, Jerusalem, the people of Israel, well, they would face war. Because they rejected him, Israel would not find peace. They would find war and judgment. Now, what Jesus was prophesying about most immediately in these verses was the destruction of Jerusalem that would take place in 70 A.D. Now, about 40 years after the death of Jesus, the Roman Empire laid siege to Jerusalem. They built a barricade around the city. They surrounded it. And then they proceeded to destroy the city and completely destroy the rebuilt temple. They, in some sense, did not leave one stone upon another. Uh, the destruction of Jerusalem was terrible. It was complete. It was horrific. But it did not have to be so. Jerusalem was experiencing the judgment of God for the rejection of Jesus. And yet what we find in the Bible is that Rome's destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., it's a real historical event, well, that was a forerunner, a foretaste of a greater judgment to come. That's the great end times judgment when Jesus returns, not humbly on a donkey, but on a white horse to make war with all those who have resisted his rule. On that day, everyone will see him for who he is, but for those who have not submitted to his rule, it will be too late. And the judgment inflicted on Jerusalem in 70 AD was a warning sign of God's final judgment to all who reject Jesus as king. We find Israel's main problem at the end of verse 44. We find what led to their judgment. They did not recognize the time when God visited. They failed to recognize that God was among them. They failed to see Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. He remained hidden. Their hearts remained hard. Friends, if you're, not he if you're here and you are not quite sure who Jesus is, I hope verse 44 makes it clear. Jesus is not just king. Jesus is not just a teacher. Jesus is not just a, a good man. Jesus is not just an example to follow. He is God. Friends, who among us does not want peace? Who among us does not want peace in the world? Peace in our home countries? Peace in our relationships with one another? Peace in our own hearts? We all want peace. But you must see from these verses that true peace only comes in submission to King Jesus. True peace only comes in submission to King Jesus. Colossians 1.21, the Apostle Paul wrote, Once you were alienated from God, and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions. In other words, friends, none of us are naturally at peace with God. By nature, we are his enemies, hostile toward him. By nature, we are in conflict with God. That is the state of the human race. That was the state of each and every one of us at birth. By nature, we are sinners separated from God. His beauty and his glory and his kindness and his love, they are hidden from us because of the sin and the corruption of our hearts and our minds. But Paul goes on to write in the very next verse, but now, but now he has reconciled or made peace with you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. 
And Jesus died on the cross so that you might be reconciled to God. Jesus came to make peace between man and God, to turn enemies of God into children of God. But friends, not everyone knows this peace. A peace does not automatically come to each and every person. If you want to know this peace, you have to submit yourself to King Jesus. You must stop going your own way. You must turn to Jesus. Turn from your sins in repentance and turn to Jesus in faith. You must believe what he says about himself. Well, Christian... To those of you who have been made children of God through the blood of Jesus Christ, through repentance and faith, to those who have truly been reconciled to God, well, God offers a further peace, an inner peace, a peace of body and mind and spirit. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 says this, Do not worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Well, Christian, how do you enjoy the peace that surpasses all understanding? It first starts with submitting to Jesus in repentance and faith, but once you have done that, Christian, how do you enjoy the peace that surpasses all understanding? That's by submitting yourself to God. Submit to his loving providence and his wisdom in your life. Do not fight against the circumstances that he has brought into your life. Do not resist his will. Do not complain. Trust him. See that he is good. Rejoice in the the things that he has brought. Recognize that he is working for your good. Do not be anxious about what might come, but go to the king of the universe in prayer. You get to take your anxieties and your worries about the future to God in prayer, recognizing that he has all things in his sovereign control. Submit your will to his will, your desires to his desires. Friends, that's what it looks like to welcome the rule of King Jesus in your life. That is how you enjoy peace. Friends, Jesus speaks much about judgment in these verses. But we must not miss the fact that this terrible judgment that was going to come to Jerusalem did not bring Jesus joy. Now, Jesus wept in sorrow over Jerusalem. He loved the people of Jerusalem. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. As I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. Repent. Repent of your evil ways. Why will you die, house of Israel? Friends, that should be an encouragement to us to confess our sins before the Lord. Jesus is ready and eager to welcome those who submit to him, who turn from their sins and turn to him in faith. And church, if this is Jesus' attitude toward those who are perishing, should it not be our attitude as the people of God as well? Should we not be filled with, with grief over our family members and, and friends and, and co-workers and neighbors and the, the people of the nations that don't know the Lord? And there's no place for despising those who do not know Jesus or looking down on them in arrogant judgment. Friends, it was not your great wisdom that saved you. It was Jesus' mercy. Which is a church, if you have been filled with Jesus' love, you should be filled with compassion for those who do not know him. 
even those who have mistreated you. I mean, Jesus here is weeping over a city that was about to put him to death. Church, if you've been filled with the compassion of Jesus, you should be filled with the desire to make Jesus' name known to those who do not know him. You should be filled with a holy desire for others to know the peace that only Jesus can bring. You should long for for other people to, to know our Savior. So church, take time to evaluate your heart. Do you share Jesus' compassion for the lost and dying world around you? What about for those who have mistreated you? If not, take time to repent and ask Jesus to change your heart. Change your desires. Ask him to fill you with his love and compassion. Ask him to change you. That's what he came to do. And that takes us to the third point of the sermon, the reforming king. The reforming king, verses 45 through 48. Look again at verse 45. He went into the temple and began to throw out those who were selling. And he said, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of thieves. Every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people were looking for a way to kill him. But they could not find a way to do it because all the people were captivated by what they heard. I recently read a a newspaper article about how many church buildings across Europe, uh, particularly in Belgium, now stand empty because Christianity has declined so significantly uh, across the continent. There's simply not enough Christians to fill the church buildings, not enough people coming to church. This has led many cities in Europe, but specifically in Belgium, to turn these empty church buildings into things like coffee shops, nightclubs, hotels, concert venues, libraries, and a host of other things. Now, thinking of a church building being turned into something else, especially a, a nightclub, just feels a little bit strange to us, probably feels a little bit wrong. But friends, Christianity is not a religion of sacred spaces. The church is not a building, but a people. Churches across the world meet in schools, movie theaters, a variety of other places. There's nothing inherently wrong with a city turning an empty church into a library or a coffee shop. The fact that the nightclub used to be a church building does not make what happens inside the nightclub any more sinful than it already was. was Sinful by itself, the fact that it happened in an old church doesn't make it more sinful. The true problem is not that these buildings are being used for different purposes. That's just an evidence of the true problem. The true problem is that the hearts of many people in Belgium and across Europe are far from the Lord. That's not a problem that's unique to Europe and Belgium. That's just the article I read. The true problem began long before the churches were turned into coffee shops. It is, in fact, the heart problem of the people, the sin problem of the people that led the churches to be empty in the first place. The new hotel in the city is simply evidence of the lack of faith among the people. In a similar way, what was going on in the temple in Jerusalem was not Israel's main problem. It was just an evidence of the true problem. Their true problem was that their hearts were far from the Lord. Worship in the temple had been corrupted because the hearts of the people were corrupted. Their rejection of the Lord began long before Jesus climbed on a colt and headed into Jerusalem. Now, Jesus entered Jerusalem just before the start of the Jewish Passover. 
a time when many people would travel to Jerusalem, and often they traveled from long distances, and so when they got there, they would need to purchase the things that were required for their sacrifices once they arrived, things like wood and oil and even the animals that might be sacrificed. Therefore, at some point, these things started being sold in the courtyard of the temple. They started being sold to the travelers. In addition, there were money changers who would convert the Greek and Roman currency into the temple currency that was needed to pay the required temple tax. Well, there were two big problems with this system. One, it had turned a place of active worship. The temple was not empty. It had turned a place of active worship into a place of business instead. It was distracting people from the worship of the Lord and putting their attention on buying and, and selling. Second, the money changers and those selling what was needed for the sacrifices would often overcharge people. They would extort from them, especially during busy times like Passover. Now, if you've ever bought food in an airport or in an amusement park, a theme park, you know that it, it costs like twice as much for the food there as it costs anywhere else. It's because you have no other options. If you're hungry and you're in the airport, you're stuck. You got to buy the food. Well, the same thing happened in the temple. Those selling took advantage of the travelers who had come from far away and overcharged them. They could make an extra profit. These people had no other options. Well, that was evidence that the worship of the people of Israel was corrupt. What was going on in the temple was evidence of the, the problem of the people. It was evidence of the corruption of their hearts. But friends, Jesus came to bring reform. He came to bring change. And I think we learn something significant about Jesus' kingship by the fact that when he entered Jerusalem, he headed to the temple first. He headed to the temple. He began to exercise his authority in the temple. He began with the house of God. But friends, Jesus came to bring spiritual change. Jesus did not come first to set up an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly kingdom. He did not come first to rule politically, but to rule spiritually to establish his rule over the hearts of his people. So he did not head to the palace, but to the temple. And when he arrived at the temple, Jesus began to throw out those who were selling. And notice that when he did so, he stood on the authority of Scripture. Quoting from the Old Testament, Jesus says this, It is written, in other words, it is written in the Old Testament, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. It's a quote from Isaiah and Jeremiah. My friends, if that is not an encouragement for us to pray as a church, I don't know what is. We want to be a praying church. We want to be a house of prayer. The temple was a place to encounter the presence of the Lord, uh, for the people to come into the presence of the Lord. And yet it had been turned into a den of thieves. But simply throwing the, the people who were selling out of the temple courtyard was not the ultimate solution that Israel needed. Just like converting a, a coffee shop back into a church building will not solve Belgium's true problem. Those buildings will just stand empty once again. What Israel needed was a change of heart. If you want to see that this is true, just look at what happened after Jesus threw out the money changers. The opposition to him just continued. It perhaps even grew. Uh, they wanted to put Jesus to death. The religious leaders were looking for a way to put him to death. The real problem remained. Hearts had not been changed. People's hearts were still corrupted. They were still just much as much in opposition to Jesus as they were before. 
And therefore, his throwing the sellers out of the temple was not the end of Jesus' work on earth. The Gospels don't stop here. Jesus did not just come to make a few changes on the outside, but to change us on the inside. Therefore, a few days later, at the end of this week, he would go to the cross and offer his body as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. Jesus suffered and died and rose again so that all who submit to his royal rule can find a forgiveness, eternal life, and everlasting peace. And after Jesus ascended into heaven, he unleashed his spirit to transform the hearts of a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. He unleashed his spirit to bring peace. His spirit is even now at work establishing Jesus on the thrones of the hearts of his people. That's what it means to be saved. It's for the spirit of the Lord to invade your heart, to kick out the idols of your heart, the things that are sitting on the throne of your life. Pleasure, money, pride, sex, your own desires, and to establish Jesus on the throne of your life instead. Church, the change that we truly need is not a change that we can accomplish on our own. Peace with God does not come by simply cleaning up your act a little bit. It does not come by stopping this one practice over here and making a New Year's resolution and starting a new practice. The Spirit of God must invade your heart and make you new. You need to be given eyes of faith so that Jesus is no longer hidden. You need to be made alive from the death of your sin. You need to be given a new nature. Friends, true change only comes through the power of the Spirit of God. Church, it is very tempting to draw a direct application from Jesus' cleansing of the temple to our church building or our meeting space. Ah, the temple, that's where they met. We meet in a church building. So the temptation is just to implement a bunch of outward rituals to try to please God. Ah, I know, we should take off our shoes as we come into the church building. Ah, we should burn some incense. That will do it. Light some candles. We're good. Just do this or do not do that then we'll be pleasing to God. If we just do these outward rituals, that will make us pleasing to the Lord. But friends, that is not the true application of what Jesus is speaking of here. It is not our church buildings that are temples of the Holy Spirit. It is our bodies that are temples of the Holy Spirit. Corporately, as the people of God, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit, not our meeting place. It is not our spaces that are to be holy. It is our hearts Therefore, if you want to apply Jesus' words about the cleansing of the temple, the proper application is to cast off your sin. It is to renounce your sin and cast it out of your life. It is to repent and throw out anything from your life that is displeasing to the Lord. It is to purify your heart. Friends, this is how you invite the presence of the Lord. This is how you submit to his kingly authority in your life. If we want to apply this text to our life as the church corporately, it's to practice church discipline. It's not to tolerate serious and unrepentant sin among the church. As the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, when they were tolerating serious sin in their church, he wrote this. Do you not know that a little leaven, a little sin, leavens the whole batch of dough, corrupts it? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch. Remove the evil person from among you. The church is called to cleanse out unrepentant sin. We don't do this for the sake of vengeance. 
but out of love and compassion, because we care about their souls. We hope that they will repent, because we care about the honor and praise of Jesus' name, and we don't want him to gain a bad name. And if that person does repent, we eagerly and joyfully welcome them back. We weep over their sin and rejoice over their repentance. Friends, Jesus came not to bring outward change, but inward change. It is the inward change that produces the true outward change. He came to bring lasting peace between you and God. He came to rescue you from your sin, to give you rest from your troubled heart. He came to bring lasting change by not just rearranging some of the things on the outside of your life, but changing you from the inside out by giving you a new nature. He came to reorient your life, to transform your desires, to radically change your loyalties, to reset your goals, to adjust your emotions. He came to bring you peace. But friends, the peace that Jesus brings only comes if you submit your will to his will. You must welcome his rule in your life. You must acknowledge him as king, submit to his good providence in your life. Friends, Jesus is the rightful king who brings peace to all who welcome his rule. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus' lordship. Thank you that even now he is sitting at your right hand, ruling and reigning over the hearts of his people. Father, we eagerly wait for the day that he returns to rule visibly and to call your people home. We eagerly long for that day, but Father, as we wait for that day, we pray that we would submit our will to Jesus' will. We would not walk by the power of our flesh, but by the power of the Spirit. Father, that we would not seat ourselves and our desires and our wants on the throne of our life, but we would put Jesus on the throne of our life. That we would eagerly and joyfully give everything we have into his service. Father, we pray that if there are any here who do not know Jesus, that you would bring them into submission to him. Father, do it by the power of your Spirit. Help them to see that Jesus is a joyful, or is a, is a gracious king, and it is joyful to follow him. Father, we pray these things in the name of our King Jesus. Amen.